I'd like to invite our ushers forward at this time as we continue in worship through our giving. It's such a great privilege to give back to God some of that which he has given to us to steward. And in doing so, we get to participate with churches all around the world to see life transformation happen, to see community transformation happen, to see the good news of Jesus Christ go across the street and around the world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you are a good, good father, as we just sang. I thank you for your provision. I thank you that we get to participate as stewards of what you've given us, to give it towards the ministry that you are doing in Willingdon, through Willingdon, and through churches across this city, this country, and around the world. We pray that you would bless these gifts for your honor, that they would point people to you, Father, through relationship, as we reach out to people, as we live out the truth of your gospel in word and deed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're going to look at a difficult text today, actually, Genesis chapter 3. Difficult because it speaks about a reality that we live in. It speaks about a reality that's so present in our lives. And the question that we're trying to answer today is the question that's in the sermon title, Why Do We Live?, east of Eden. Even in Genesis chapter 4, we see that the first son of Adam and Eve, Cain, he murders his brother Abel. And when God comes to Cain and asks him, so where's your brother Abel? Cain's response is, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And we read in Genesis chapter 4, verse 16, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. East of Eden, away from the presence of the Lord. Some headlines uh, this week. The Globe and Mail. Hong Kong shutters government offices as protests over China extradition bill turn violent. Why would that have to happen? The National Post. Student uses Snapchat's gender swap filter to hunt for sexual predators. Why does that happen? The New York Times, inside the elementary school where addiction sets the curriculum. Al Jazeera. Mali declares three days of national mourning for massacre victims. And we could read headline after headline. Why do we, as a human race, live so far east of Eden. We read in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis that God designed the perfect environment for us, this ordered cosmos. Man and woman created in the image of God, created to complement one another, to help one another. They had this clear identity. They had been created in the image of God. To love God, to love one another, to complement one another, to help one another, to rule over creation, to multiply. Man and woman were one. No shame. God was present with them. They were fulfilled, needing nothing. They were in the Garden of Eden, the most idyllic environment imaginable. So why do we live so far east of Eden? Second page in the Bible, if you grab a Bible from the seat back in front of you, it's Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any, any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave, gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The serpent appears here in Genesis chapter 3. There isn't a long explanation about the serpent's origin, but this simple snake, there's a lot more than a snake present or at work here. An evil power is at work through the snake. And in the New Testament, the serpent is clearly identified as Satan. Revelation 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Satan is the adversary of God and of all of humanity in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus says this, When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's described in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, as crafty. He's shrewd. He's cunning in contrast to the innocence of the man and the woman before the fall. So know this. Know that the power of Satan is in the lie. First point in your outline, know that the power of Satan is in the lie. What's his strategy? In verse 1, the serpent asks, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He comes with this note of surprise. Did God actually say? He comes like an angelic theologian. Paul will later write in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, and no wonder For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. With seemingly innocent words, he misrepresents God's command. Did you notice that Satan emphasizes the prohibition and doesn't talk about God's abundant provision? He plants seeds of doubt. What had God actually said? In chapter 2, verse 16, we read God's words to Adam and Eve. You may surely eat of every tree. This is what God said. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, except for one. 
Somehow Satan missed that point. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The you that we find throughout the text, it's actually plural. And so Adam is standing right beside Eve the whole time. Satan deliberately distorts God's words because he wants to incite confusion. He wants God to appear as harsh and restrictive. You could hear him asking, why is God against you treating yourself? Why is God against you experiencing the joy of eating that fruit? Why is God so restrictive? Why is he against your freedom? Subtle shifts in language can have profound meaning. For example, I'm sure you noticed this this week that there's quite a debate raging south of the border in the United States and also in our country around the the pro-life movement. And I find it fascinating the way that the the, the movement is labeled. It's labeled as anti-choice. So, Those who are members of the pro-life movement and are trying to defend the sanctity of life, are they actually against choice? Is that what they're about? Does that define them? Those who identify themselves with the pro-life movement, are they actually against the rights of women? Is that their platform? We are against choice and we are against the rights of women. No. But language is used to paint a picture, to make us believe that they are actually anti-choice, anti-women. Language is so important. In his language, Satan, he doesn't use the personal name for God. Throughout the text, God is referred to as Lord God, Yahweh Elohim in Hebrew. Yahweh is the personal name used for God in the Old Testament. So, Satan does not refer to God as Yahweh. He doesn't use the personal name. He tries to create distance between Adam and Eve and God. And so he uses the more generic term for God, Elohim, the remote creator. That's what he's trying to communicate. Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So Eve, in her response, she too, she she counters the serpent, but she too misrepresents God and his instruction. In the way that she now refers to God, she too does not use the name Yahweh. She refers to God by his more generic name, God, the Creator. She goes beyond what Yahweh has ordered. Look at what she says. She says, God not only said that we should not eat from the tree, we shouldn't even touch it. So she adds some legalism. Another point to note, She provides her own version of the consequence of sin. This is what God had said in chapter 2, verse 17. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In other words, you will be doomed to death. And Eve, what she says is this. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree, lest you die. In other words, if you eat, you may die. 
If you eat, you, re- you run the risk of dying. If you eat, there is the possibility that you may die. Eve believes that she can modify God's command. She believes that she can minimize God's abundant provision. She downplays the punishment for disobedience. Satan has her going. He senses the weakness, and so he goes for the kill. In verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now he blatantly contradicts the word of God. His words could read like this. Don't think that death is such an immediate threat. There actually isn't that much to worry about. What's his strategy? He undermines God's integrity. He questions God's motives. He downplays the consequences of disobedience. You will not surely die. Your eyes will be opened. He speaks half-truths. His power is in the lie. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Don't fear what God can do. God is actually keeping something from you. If you follow his counsel, you will not get what is rightfully yours. God is just protecting his divine rights. He's safeguarding his divine status. So what is the lie that we might believe today? Well, a a lie that we might believe today is this. God's will for your life is much less than what you could imagine for yourself. God's will for your life is much less than what you might imagine for yourself in terms of vocation, education, relationships, entertainment. What God has for you is much less than what you might come up with for yourself. We can fall prey to the lie that somehow God will keep us from being all that we could be. So Satan, he tantalizes Adam and Eve with the possibility of being like God. In essence, he's saying God is not only robbing you of your full humanity, but he's keeping you from your divine potential. You could be just like him. Have you ever heard that lie? You have the potential within you to be divine. Now, here's the irony of Satan's counsel. The man and the woman had already been created by God in the image of God. God actually wanted Adam and Eve to be like him, holy and just and righteous and true and good and faithful and loving and wise and discerning. That was God's desire for them. They were to even exercise authority over all of creation and in doing that, image their Father in heaven. But they chose instead to submit to one of his creatures. Satan is suggesting that they can be wise, that they can be just like God without waiting for God's timing, without waiting for God's revelation. They can go their own way and it will be better for them. And that's the essence of temptation. Know that the essence of temptation is to believe that it is better for you to go your own way. And somehow, for some reason, we fall prey to that lie, that it's actually better for us to go our own way. Our society worships independence. In fact, in current literature, it's not uncommon to hear that it was commendable for Adam and Eve to go their own way. 
It was worth the cost. For example, R. Simpkins, in his book Creator and Creation, as appealing as paradise might be, this is not the world in which humans live, nor is it the world in which humans prefer to live. Mickey Ball, in her book Lethal Love, Eve does not sin. She chooses reality over her naive, paradisical existence. Her choice marks the emergence of human character. And so these authors are saying that Adam and Eve should actually be commended for their noble choice. Their choice leads to enlightened freedom. They rid themselves of divine constraint. Now they can be all that they should be. Personal freedom and autonomy are the ultimate values of our North American society. Peter Jones, in his book Spirit Wars, he tells the story of a Russian princess. At the end of the 19th century, Madame Helena Blavatsky, she left her noble roots in Russia. She moved to New York to form the Theosophical Society. She tried to merge Western occultism with Eastern spirituality. And near the end of her life, lamenting the decision that she had made, she said this, I quote her, I would gladly return. I would gladly be Russian, Christian, Orthodox. I yearn for it, but there's no returning. I'm in chains. I am not my own. And Peter Jones comments, the trouble with this freedom that the devil offers us, the trouble with this freedom is that it is slavery to the powers of evil. Its glittering promise is the same old lie. Its wages lead to personal dissolution and death. But it is a real lie, spoken by the father of lies. Here are some lies that we sometimes believe. God's will for my life may be good. I know that we just sang, you know, Father, you're perfect in all your ways. We sang that over and over again. But sometimes in daily life, we believe this, God's plan for my life may be good, but mine is better. Lying may not be right, but it's much better than coming under the shame of wrongdoing. Stealing from the government may be wrong, but it's much better than paying all my taxes. The sex outside of marriage and unwanted pregnancies may not be the best, but it is much better than not being sexually active. Lies that are so prevalent in our society today. And here are some truths. God is not less sovereign when we choose to go our own way. When I choose to go my own way, God does not become less than he is. I may shift my dependency, but I will never truly be independent. Independence is an illusion. When I refuse to come under God's sovereignty, his reign, his will, I choose a very costly dependence. I'm dependent on my own resources, which are always so limited. I'm dependent on a broken world around me. 
And I put myself in a vulnerable position before a spiritual enemy that is very, very hostile and wants my destruction. You see, in seeking independence and freedom and power, we only forge new chains. We become slaves to sin. We read in verse 6 of chapter 3, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. There's a summary statement of temptation's seductive force, good for food, in a very practical way. If I eat from the tree, it's going to meet my physical needs. A delight to the eyes. It represents what I long for, what I yearn for. To make one wise, I will be more wise, more insightful, more myself, more godlike. The Apostle John, he summarizes temptation in very similar language. 1 John 2, verse 16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, human desire is not inherently evil. We were created to desire. But our desires become twisted when we're not submitted to God and His will. Adam and Eve here, they willfully disobey God's instructions because they truly believe that it will be better for them. They were created to govern the earth, to rule over creation, but now they reject their creator and submit to one of his creatures. They truly believe that they can receive the blessing that they want, the fulfillment that they want apart from God. And that's what we do every time that we sin. Every time that we act independently of God, we're telling ourselves that we can actually get the blessing that we want, the fulfillment that we want, apart from God. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Remember at the end of chapter 2? Adam and Eve, created in the image of God, they're together, they're one, and there is no shame. And now in chapter 3, that innocent serenity has been shattered. For the first time, they feel shame. In chapter 2, they were one. No need to protect their vulnerability with clothing. But now for the first time, there's separation between Adam and Eve. Their choice to walk independently of God has caused them to, for the first time, experience evil. And this knowledge of evil, good and evil, it's not a neutral state. They are now enslaved to sin. So in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? When God comes in the cool of the day, they now hide themselves from God's presence for the first time. Why? Because they fear judgment. They now feel guilt. They feel shame. And so know this. Know that the consequences of sin are always alienation from God. Always separation from other people and self-destruction. 
Know that the consequences of sin are always alienation from God, separation from other people, and self-destruction. Now, there is a beautiful note here. God still pursues them. God still pursues the object of his love. And so he comes to Adam and Eve now in their lost condition and he asks the question, where are you? You can hear the pain in the question. You see, the biggest consequence of the fall of Adam and Eve is not that they can no longer enjoy the comforts of Eden. It's not that they can no longer enjoy the benefits of Eden. The greatest loss of the fall is loss of access to God. Loss of intimacy with the Father. That loss of relationship. And that's the message of the Old and New Testaments. Throughout the Scriptures, we see that that is the great, great loss. So what's the way back? Verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God knows the answers to his questions. The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. When my daughters were were still at home, sometimes I would get a box of chocolates as a gift. And so I would think to myself, well, the family is well fed, everyone has had dessert, I'll put these away for another time. So I would come back the next day, I would open up the cupboard, and I would pull out that box of chocolates, open it up, hmm, there were 12, and now there are only eight. (laughs) So I would call my daughters over, huh, mysterious. There were 12, now eight. Well, Dad, you left them where we could see them. It's your fault. Okay, that explains three being gone. And the fourth, I would look at my sweet wife and say, Honey, there are now only eight. Well, the daughters that you gave me. Blame shifting, right? We all do it. Here, Adam and Eve, they eat from the tree, and for the first time in human history, blame shifting. Man, Adam, he blames God. The woman you gave me. She gave me fruit from the tree. The woman blames the serpent. You see, when we follow Satan's counsel, we become people of the lie. We become people of the lie. You start to find ways to justify our behavior, why we have acted in the way that we have. And it's so hard for us to just own it and say, I actually was tempted and I chose to eat it because I thought that by eating it, I would get what I wanted. (laughs) 
Adam and Eve, they eat from the tree, and now they're just preoccupied with themselves. They're not thinking about God. They're not thinking about each other. The divisive impact of sin is so evident. The man is now separated from his dearest companion, the woman. Man and woman are now separated from God. You see, Satan came speaking a half-truth. You will not surely die. His power is always in the lie. Man and woman, they don't die physically, instantaneously, but they are now spiritually dead. And what they experience outside the Garden of Eden, east of Eden, is so far below what God intended for them. You see, the abundant provision will be gone. The innocence is gone. They now live separated from God, and they will die physically. They will return to the dust. In Adam and Eve's sin, we see the beginning of every sin, all forms of suffering and pain. The entire human race comes under the power of physical and spiritual death. We're all born east of Eden. So if you are a father or mother, and you have... God has gifted you with the child, then you know that that child, so beautiful, so wonderfully created in the image of God, it does have inclinations that you surprise you, that surprise you. Thoughts, actions. We are all born east of Eden. So what's the way back? In Luke chapter 4, in the New Testament, Jesus is in the wilderness, and Satan believes that it's an opportune time to tempt Jesus. And it's interesting that he uses the same tactics. He appeals to Jesus' flesh. It, uh, he appeals to what he might desire. He, he appeals to the pride of life. And so he comes to Jesus, and he says, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Use your power, Jesus, to satisfy your desires. Don't wait for God to do something for you. And Jesus, he chooses to live by the word of God. He chooses to trust his heavenly father. Satan then offers him the kingdoms of this world. And there's a lie there because the kingdoms of this world are actually not his to offer. But he says to Jesus, I will give you the kingdoms of this world if you will only worship me. And Jesus refuses to worship Satan. He chooses to worship the Father only and serve him only. Then Satan comes to him and says, why don't you throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple? And as he does that, as he makes that challenge, he uses scripture. He's crafty. He misquotes scripture. Angels will come and rescue you. You can test God's goodness and you will prove to all who are watching that you truly are the Son of God. And Jesus chooses to trust God's goodness, chooses to do the Father's will, and goes to the cross. Jesus chooses the way of the Father. He lives by the word of God. He trusts his father. He overcomes temptation. He shows us the way. There's this beautiful passage in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong 
slavery. Jesus came to set us free. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, people like us. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus can truly help us. So Jesus, he goes to the cross. He overcomes temptation. He overcomes the temptation to go his own way. He, the Son of God, he takes our sin upon himself. He pays the price for it in full, once for all. And through his death and resurrection, he overcomes the power of sin, the power of death, the power of the devil himself. Through his death and resurrection, he opens the way into the Father's presence. As he dies, the temple curtain is torn. A new and living way is opened into the Father's presence. When we repent of our sin, when we turn from our independent ways and turn to Jesus as our Savior and Lord, accept his sacrifice on our behalf, we are forgiven, set free of all guilt. Our shame is removed. Our fears are dispelled. We're forgiven. Our relationship with God is restored. And the Father and the Son, they send the Holy Spirit to abide in us that we might have the power to not sin. So know that the tempter, temptation, and sin's consequences are overcome only through Jesus. The only way to overcome the tempter, temptation, and sin's consequences is through Jesus, in Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what is the step that you and I need to take today to walk in communion with Jesus, to walk in relationship with the Father, to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit? Maybe you have never made the decision to surrender your life to Jesus. Know that the Father invites you to know him to know Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord. The Father sent Jesus out of love. While we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us, the Scriptures say. So God knows our condition. And even though we do sin, the Father reaches out to us in love. He calls us back to himself. So if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, I would encourage you to do that today. That's the best decision you could make on this Father's Day. Our Father in heaven is a good, good Father. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus, but you've been tempted by sin. We are all tempted And the temptation is always an opportunity for growth, but there are moments when we do fall to sin's temptation. A few weeks ago, I was participating in a set-free retreat, and one of the exercises in the retreat was to identify some of the sins uh, that maybe we needed to confess. And so there was a card for us to fill out, and I did that 
best I could as, with as much transparency as possible. And I found that I had to mark a lot more than I wanted to mark as I prayed through that. The good news is that when we confess our heart's condition, the Father makes Himself present. The Father blesses those that are humble before Him, contrite. That's the grace that we receive from the Father to be real, to be authentic before Him, to be transparent before Him and receive His forgiveness. When we sin, if we're following Jesus, we've surrendered our lives to Him. It's not that we lose our salvation when we sin. But what can happen is that that sin can harden our hearts. We can find ourselves in a place of unbelief. Our relationship with God can be hindered because there's sin blocking our hearts. Our minds are clouded. Our emotions confused. And we're not walking in the freedom that Jesus purchased for us. You see, what happens is that we somehow believe that if we go our own way, if we give in to the sin, we're going to get what we want. It'll be better for us. And that is always a lie. But God, who is so merciful, so gracious, even though we fall, He continues to call us back to Himself. Scriptures say that He is jealous for us. Why? Because He knows what is best for us, that we live in communion with Him. He sent His Son, Jesus, so that we might experience life in its fullness, abundant life. So may the Holy Spirit enable us to discern the lies of the enemy and live by the truth of Jesus because the truth of Jesus always sets us free. Amen. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Let's stand for prayer. And I'm going to pray a prayer for, um, for those who may want to surrender their lives to Jesus for the first time. You're here today and you recognize that you really need Jesus in your life. You want to be forgiven. You want to be set free. You want to receive the gift of eternal life. If that's you, then pray this prayer with me. It'll be on the screen behind me. You can pray together with me. Jesus, thank you for the invitation to know you. Please forgive me for leading my own life separate from you. Thank you for dying on the cross and paying the price for all my sin. I repent and surrender my whole life to you today, Jesus. I turn to you for forgiveness, for new life. Jesus, lead me from this day forward. Fill me with your spirit. Set me free. Make me into the kind of person you created me to be. I want to be like you. Father, thank you for adopting me into your family and gifting me with eternal life 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today for the first time, um, feel free to come, o- come forward to have conversation. Go to the prayer center or the welcome center. We would love to encourage you in your journey. Don't go home without telling someone that you prayed that prayer today. We want to bless you. Now a prayer for all of us. Father, again, we just thank you that you are so good, so merciful, so gracious. Thank you that you're slow to anger, that you're patient with us. Thank you that you're faithful to draw us back to yourself. Forgive us, Father, for succumbing to temptation, for sinning, for missing the mark, for rebelling against you. God, forgive us for harboring sin in our hearts. And so we come before you because you are so good and gracious, because you are righteous and just, and we just present ourselves before you. So as we stop here for a moment in silence, what is it that the Lord would have you confess today to him? Ask the Lord to speak to you. Father, we come before you and confess our sin. Our anger, our bitterness, our unforgiveness, our unbelief, our self-righteousness, our self-pity, our greed, our materialism, our judgmental thoughts, our envy, our jealousy, our gossip, our slander, our hurtful speech. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that we can confess our sins. Father, we repent and we ask, Lord, that we would be renewed by your Holy Spirit today. We thank you that you are present to set us free of all guilt Thank you that you don't want us to live under guilt. Thank you that you don't want us to live under shame. Thank you that you don't want us to live in fear. That you have come, Jesus, that we might know the Father, that we might return to Eden, that we might be filled with your Holy Spirit and live in a new way. So, Father, have your way in our lives. May we live this day, this week, full of faith in you, our Savior. May we truly trust you, Lord, with all that we are in every moment. And when the enemy comes to tempt us, O God, may we be discerning. O God, by your Holy Spirit, enable us to to discern the tactics of the enemy. And may we keep our eyes fixed on you, Jesus, and run the race before us. 
for the joy set before us. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. 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 God bless you.